Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who hears us. But even before you're a God who hears us, you're a God who speaks to us. You're a God who speaks in your word. And so, Lord, as we come before your word today, we pray you would help us to hear from you, that we might go forth as people who've heard from your word, shaped by your word, transformed by your word, to bring you more glory and the good of our community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in, in 2013, uh, some Lego artists decided that they were going to reveal this beautiful creation that they had been working on for years. And they revealed this beautiful creation in Times Square, New York. And it, it happened to be actually a, a life-size model of the X-Wing fighter from the Star Wars series. If you've never seen Star Wars before, that's the ship that Luke Skywalker, maybe you heard that name before, Luke Skywalker and the Rebel Alliance, they're defending the galaxy with this incredible ship. It's a famous ship. And this is a life-size model made out of Legos. And it took them, get this, 32 master builders. Yes, kids, that, that's a real job. There's people out there who get paid money to build things with Legos. Right, 32 master builders took 17,000 hours to build this life-size model. And it was 44 feet wide, the wingspan of this thing. They had to build it in this incredible facility in the Czech Republic and then break it down into 34 pieces, put it on two boats, and ship it off to New York. And this was a massive project. And when it gets to New York, then they have to reassemble it. And they had to get these teams of, of structural engineers who could help them reassemble it in a way to make sure that it was safe and, and consistent. And so they have all this team, this massive team, coming together for this one project. Because, listen, it was over 5 million pieces. It's the largest Lego model that's ever been built in history. Can you imagine the instruction manual on five million pieces? I mean, some of you parents, you know you've got Legos in your house and it feels like you have five million Legos, but five million Legos is a lot of Legos. How do you build something like that? Well, it's the same way you build a little small model. It's one Lego at a time for 17,000 hours. One Lego at a time. Right? It's, it's these small things that build big things. It's these small steps that make big impact. And, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning because that, that concept is, is really true in lots of life, but we have a love-hate relationship with small things, don't we? I mean, in, in a sense, small things have, have come back into style. Right? There's this whole movement in our culture right now about craft. Everything's craft. You have craft jewelry and craft beer and craft burgers and craft this and that, right? And then we're, we're pushing small business. We want small business Saturday and small gadgets and smaller phones. And, and so the idea is everything gets smaller because if it's smaller, it's more valuable. If, if it was in a smaller batch, it's, it's more precious. But on the other end of the spectrum, we also hate small things. We, we want bigger things. We want bigger houses, bigger cars, bigger bank accounts, a, a bigger bonus at the end of the year. We want a bigger promotion at our job. We want a, a bigger everything, right? Everything in our life is, is trying to move in that direction of getting bigger, bigger, bigger. In one sense, you could say that the universal religion in Western culture is bigness. 
bigness. Everything's up and to the right. And big is a status symbol. It's the symbol that you've made it. It's the symbol that you're successful. It's the symbol that, that you've done something significant because it's big. You want a bigger business? You want a bigger church? You want a bigger family? But what, what if God does big things through small things? What if it's completely flipped from the way our culture views success and, and progress? What if the way God gets things done is not through big things, but it's through small, seemingly insignificant steps? I think he does. And this is what we're talking about in the Pray for One series. And, and we just watched a video with Lacey sharing her testimony of how God has, has worked in her life. And we're going to keep watching these videos throughout the year at various times uh, but these videos tell stories of how God works in these small things that maybe you don't see as significant, right? And so the series is really, uh, this past few weeks that we've been talking, ha has been about this prayer that we want to pray. The prayer is this, God, give me one person today. Give me one person today that I can share your love with. That's it. Just one person, not, not 12 people, not 100 people, not tomorrow, but today, God, I want just one person that I can share your love with in tangible, real ways. It may seem like it's small, it may seem like it's insignificant, but I promise you, if we pray that and we listen and watch for what God's going to do, he does great things. So how? How does he do it? That's what I want to look at today as we close out this series. How does he do great things through our small steps? Well, it starts with a test. It starts with a test, and this is the first point today, the, the test. Look at me at verse 1 as we jump into this story. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now pause there for a moment. Let's set the context. Jesus and the disciples have been ministering to people all day long. They've been teaching, they've been healing, they've been, they've been hanging out, serving these people, and they're tired, right? And so Jesus and the disciples, they try to go on the other side of the lake to get away from the people. You ever have one of those moments where you're just so tired, I just need a break from people? Don't shake your head, parents, I know what you're talking about, but, but you just need a break from people. So they try to go on the other side of the lake, and what happens? They follow Jesus they follow him all the way around the lake. He can't get away. They, they traveled the miles to get there. So now they've been walking all day. Now they're tired. They're hot. They're hungry. And John paints the picture very similar to the Old Testament situation where Israel was in the wilderness. Israel was wandering in the wilderness. And just like this, there's a large crowd of people. They're hot. They're tired. They're hungry. And they don't care that Jesus has done all these miracles today. What they want to know is where's lunch they, they want to know, when are we going to eat? Because we're starving. And I love in the text, uh, just like Moses asked God in the wilderness, Moses asked God, what are we going to do about these people who need food? Jesus asks a similar question to Philip. This is what he says. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now look at what John says in verse 6. He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Okay, so, so Moses in the Old Testament, he asked God this same or similar question, what are we going to do about the food? Because Moses didn't know. Moses is in the middle of nowhere. Where are we going to get food? 
Jesus asked the question not because he doesn't know. He knew the answer. Jesus asked the question because he wanted to know if Philip knew the answer. I love how John puts it. He asked him to test him. That word in biblical theology has, has a huge impact. The, the word test there is the same word you might translate trial. It shows up all throughout the Bible as the way God sends people into trials, sends people into tests, sends people into these moments where it's going to reveal something, right? And so the test always, in a loving way, it's going to reveal something about the person. Just like it did with Israel in the wilderness, it revealed their hearts. God sends us into tests to reveal something in us. Now, pause here for a second. Someone recently shared this insight with me, and I, I got to pass it along because it's so helpful. There's two kinds of tests, two kinds of tests. There's a Jonah test, and there's a Job test. If you know the story of Jonah, you know that, that a Jonah test is, in Jonah's situation, Jonah was called by God to go preach to the Ninevites. He was supposed to go preach the gospel and, and go to the Ninevites, and, and the problem was Jonah hated the Ninevites. Jonah didn't want to go preach because he was racist and prejudiced toward, towards the Ninevites who had oppressed their people. So Jonah didn't want to go preach because Jonah didn't want God to give them grace. Jonah, the last thing Jonah wanted was to go preach and then they experienced God's love and kindness. No, 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 no. I'm not going there. And so what happens? Jonah runs from God. And if you know the story, he ends up in the belly of a fish for three days. Now, why did God send him into the belly of the fish? Why did God send him into that test? To reveal in Jonah what was inside of him, his own prejudice, his own sin. See, listen, a Jonah test is meant to reveal in us our sin. Now, compare that to a Job test. You go to the book of Job, and Job, if you know the story of Job, he loses everything, right? His life starts to fall apart. He goes into this extreme suffering and trial. And what happens? The whole first half of the book of Job is them trying to figure out what kind of sin have you committed to deserve this, right? The people in Job's life are trying to treat him like he's in a Jonah test. They're trying to treat him like he must have done something wrong to deserve this kind of suffering. And so we got to figure it out. We got we to gotta find out where the sin is. What are you hiding, Job? What, what have you done? What, what do you need to repent of? And if you know the story, it's the complete opposite purpose. Job was not being tested because he had sinned. Job was being tested because God wanted to reveal in Job the substance of his faith. He wanted to reveal in Job that, that if, if all these things were gone, would you still love me the way that you love me now? Would, would you still have this, this, this desire to serve me? Would you still be an upright and righteous man, even if you had none of these lesser loves? It was here, Here's the purpose. It was to reveal the substance of his faith. So you have a Jonah test, which is to reveal sin, and then you have a Job test, which is to reveal the substance. Here's where we go wrong. We go wrong when we think we're in one test and we're really in the other. In other words, you, you think you're in a Jonah test and you start searching your life for, maybe I've sinned in some way, maybe I've done something wrong that I need to repent of, and listen, you probably have, so have I. 
right? There, there's always a, a plethora of sins that you can repent of. There, there's probably something in your life, if you dig far enough, you will find a sin that you need to repent of because all of us are sinners and all of us need repentance and all of us need grace. But what if that's not the purpose of the test? What if the test that you're in is to reveal your faith? To reveal the substance of of what you really believe, of what you really trust in, of of who God really is in your life. Well, what if what you're walking through and and as as you look at your situation and you look at your resources and you think these two things, they don't match up. What if the purpose of that situation is to extend your faith, to stretch your faith, to reveal your faith? I think we go wrong when we start looking inward and thinking, man, I must have done something wrong. And we start shaming ourselves. We start creating guilt that shouldn't be there. We we start finding maybe something. I I need to uncover a rock and there's going to be something hidden that I'm missing. And it turns into a witch hunt on yourself. But listen, what's happening here? Jesus was testing the substance of Philip's faith. He's about to challenge Philip with with this idea. Philip, do you believe that I can do great things with small things. Philip, do you, do you really trust in me or are you going to trust in your own resources? Are you going to trust in your own abilities? Are you going to trust in you or are you going to trust in me, Philip? See, Philip was entering into a test and it was a Job test. It was a Job test to reveal to Philip and to all the disciples and to us what he was really trusting in. And so what's the answer to the test? Let's see how Philip answers. This is, this is great. Look at verse 7. This is the answer. Philip answers him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. I love this. Philip does a quick math test, right? He, he might have been a math teacher. I don't know. But he, he does some quick math. He looks out. He sees 5,000 men which scholars say that's describing just the head of the household here. And and so it's not even describing the women and the children and and people who are beyond that. They're they're probably somewhere like 20,000 people, they could estimate. And and Philip looks out at this crowd of 20,000 hungry people who've been following Jesus around this huge lake, and they're hungry, they're tired, and he thinks to himself, even if we had 200 denarii, which is about eight months' wages... I don't know what you make, but if you had eight months worth of your wages, he says, even if we had eight months worth of wages, we wouldn't be able to afford to buy him a snack. This is just so many people, Jesus. In other words, he's saying, this this is impossible. This is absolutely impossible. And then his buddy Andrew chimes in and he says, hey, there's a boy here. Look what he says in verse 9. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but... What are they for so many people? I mean, the barley loaves that he's describing, they're they're more like crackers. They're like little stale pieces of bread that that poor people would carry along as like a lunch during the day. And then the fish he's describing are are more like sardines. They're, They're dried fish. This is the meal that this little boy had in his lunchbox. And and the guy looks at him, Andrew looks at him and says, Well, we got this little boy here, but what's that gonna do? I mean, his question says it all, right? What are they compared to so many? When I look at at what I have and what we need, 
There's no comparison. It's impossible. And then in the midst of their unbelief, in the midst of their fear, Jesus just simply says, have them all sit down. Have them all sit down. And Jesus takes the bread, these little stale crackers from the little boy's lunch, and Jesus blesses them. And, and if Jesus was using the common blessing of the Jewish people of that day, it would have sounded something like this, scholars say. It would have sounded like, Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. From the earth. That's what Jesus would have prayed, something along those lines, this blessing, this, this thanksgiving. And then he broke the bread and he gave it to the disciples. And then the disciples passed it along to everyone who's sitting down waiting to be fed. And it, the Bible says that everyone ate until they were full. In fact, they had so much food, they had more leftovers at the end than what they began with. I mean, could you imagine that? You've never eaten a meal in your life where you have more at the end. This is what's happening. And, and what's amazing is where, where did the miracle happen? The miracle didn't happen like it did in the wilderness where God rained bread from the sky, right? This is not coming down from the heavens. The miracle happened right there in the hands of the disciples. As Jesus gives them the bread, he says, go pass it out to the people. And as they distribute it, every time they pass out a piece of bread, there's more bread in the basket. And then they pass out another piece, and there's more bread in the basket. They pass out another piece, there's more bread in the It just keeps coming. The miracle was happening as they were doing it. The miracle was happening in the hands of the disciples, What's incredible is you look back in Andrew's question and, 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 um, and, and Philip's doubt, they, they were saying what we have in our hands is not enough. And what Jesus is showing is, is, no, what you have in your hands is more than enough. What you have is in fact enough because God will multiply your small things into his miraculous things. Into his miraculous things. One of baseball's most memorable moments uh, was in 1995 at uh, Camden Yards in Baltimore. The Orioles ended up beating the Angels that night, but that's not why it's one of the most memorable nights in baseball's history. The reason is because it happened to be Cal Ripken Jr.'s 2,131st consecutive game. Think about that. 2,131 games in a row. And here he is breaking the record that night that was held by Lou Gehrig, and everybody in sports history thought this is the most unattainable record in sports. Like, no one will ever break this record. The record was held for 56 years. And so here he is on that night breaking that record, and the moment that everyone started to cheer was in the fifth inning, because in the fifth inning they, they declare this has been a full game. And so everybody starts cheering, and, and it's a sold-out crowd, and as soon as he comes out, the crowd erupts, and listen, they cheer for 22 minutes. A standing ovation for 22 minutes. That's a long time. Now think about this. What were they cheering for? They weren't cheering for the guy who just broke the home run record. They weren't cheering for the person who, who broke the, the record for most hits or, or a perfect game or, or any of those incredible achievements. They're cheering for someone who simply showed up to every game for 14 years. Every game for 14 years. Through every injury, 
through every difficulty, through every sickness, he came to every single game. What they were cheering for was someone who was faithful in the small things that became great things. Listen, every single one of us in here, this is what Jesus is, is uh, challenging Philip's faith, is that all of us can be faithful in the small things that then become the great things, right? That, that, that's the theme for this pray for one theme in the whole year is we, we really want all of us to, to capture that vision that God can use you in, in small ways that seem insignificant, but God turns them into these incredible opportunities for the gospel. But we start with what we have. You start with what's in your hands. You start with what you love, what you do, what, what already is happening in your life. So it's simple things, right? It's simple things like maybe you love to cook or bake, or maybe you're just one of the people like me who likes to eat, right? And, and so food is kind of a central part of your life. Well, what you have to do is invite people into that. Just invite people over to your house. You're already cooking dinner. You're already baking cookies, whatever it is. Invite people over and start conversations and watch what God does. Or maybe for you, it's playing sports or watching sports, right? If you're kind of past your prime, you like to watch the sports now. And so, you know, you're already watching the game. Well, why not invite people into your life as you watch football or you watch basketball or, or whatever it is, right? Or if you're playing, I, I hear that the, the new cool game is, uh, what's that game? Pickleball. I never played pickleball, but the kids tell me it's fun. I don't know, but if you play pickleball, invite people into that. Bring people into your life and see what God does. Or it could be exercise, right? This is the time of the year where people want to get healthy and we want to uh, do you know, habits that will change our, our health and whatever. If you're going on a walk, invite someone on a walk. If you're going on a run, invite someone to run with you. If you're, if you're doing some kind of strenuous diet, I'm not doing that, but if you're doing some kind of strenuous diet, invite somebody into your diet world and start conversations around that. Right? Whatever you have in your hands, that's what Jesus can use. You take the bread, and as you pass it out, God multiplies it. You take the, the fish, and as you pass it out, God multiplies it. Some of you right now, you're, you're hearing that, and you're thinking, there's no way God could use me watching Netflix. There's no way God could use my bad cookies. There's no way God could use... right. But listen... God can use the small things. Sometimes we hear that and we think, but what is this for so many? Right? How can God use my, my you know, kids' activities? What is this compared to all the needs that happen in the world? I mean, haven't you heard about the injustice in our community? Haven't you heard about all the people who are far from Christ? Haven't you heard about the marriages that are falling apart? How can, how can this make any difference in the massive need that's out there. Listen, you're right in one sense. Without Jesus, it's just a couple stale pieces of bread and two nasty fish. But with Jesus, he can do incredible things. Right? The question is not, what are they for so many? The, that's the wrong question. When, when Andrew asked that question, it's the wrong question. The right question is, what is God for so many. What is God for so many? Forget what they are. What, what is God for all the people, all the needs, all the people in your life who, who are in desperate need? What is God? He's enough, right? See, small things without Jesus can't do anything, but small things with Jesus can do anything. 
It can do anything. Because in the hands of Jesus, it's enough. When I compare God to my needs, it's plenty. Right? I know that I have abundance. There's more than enough in God to transform my own heart. There's more than enough in God to, to redeem my coworkers. There's more than enough in God to meet the needs of my grandchildren. There's more than enough in God to do whatever I am praying for him to do because he's enough. He's enough. And he's asking, will you show up faithfully? That's the test. Will you believe? Will you trust me with these small things and watch me do great things? See, the, the substance of our faith is found in a different source. And this is where Jesus goes the last point and we'll close the source look at verse 14 this is great when the people saw the sign that he had done they said this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world again john is painting this picture from the old testament in the wilderness if you remember the story of the wilderness again the people are, are walking through the wilderness they're hungry they're tired they're grouchy they're complaining and after 40 years of complaining they finally make it to the end and they're getting ready to go into the promised land and Moses tells the people before they go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be this promise. And the promise is that God is going to send another prophet. And when this prophet comes, he's going to be like me, but he's going to be greater than me. And so that promise from Deuteronomy 18 became well known in the Israelite community that this was the Messiah who's going to come. This is the one who's going to be the true and greater Moses and so when they see Jesus acting just like Moses did in the wilderness, they catch on. They say, hey, this is the one that Moses talked about. This is the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. This is the one that was to come. This is the one we're waiting for. Jesus is him. And then watch what they do in verse 15. Look what they do. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I love this because it's so, uh, it's so specific, so detailed. John is telling us that, that Jesus knew their intention. Jesus knew that, that they were not only excited he was the prophet, they were going to put on him their own expectation. And so what they're going to do is they're going to take him by force. The word means to arrest there. They're, they're going to capture Jesus, and whether he likes it or not, they're going to put him in the palace, and he's going to be king because Jesus is useful. He's not beautiful. He's not wonderful. He, he's not a savior to worship. He, he's somebody, he's, he's a messianic bread machine. I mean, think if Jesus was in the palace and he had that kind of power and that kind of position, think what he could do. We got to get him in the position of power. And what does Jesus do when he knows their intentions? He withdraws. And he hides from them because he doesn't want anything to do with that. Why? Because, listen, their source was not his source. What they thought was, we got to do great things through greatness. we got to do powerful things through privilege. we, we got to do incredible things through a, a position of power and, and position. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way I'm going to do this work. I'm going to do great things through small things. I'm going to do great things through weakness. I'm going to do great things through the unseen, hidden kingdom. Listen, the kingdom comes not by a massive crowd, but through a rugged cross. Through a cross. I mean, sometimes we can look at the cross and we think, what is this? 
What, what is this? How could God get anything great done through a cross? What, what is this, this symbol of, of, of oppression by the Romans, this symbol of death and defeat, this symbol of, of our losses and our failures? How could God do anything through a cross? How could God do anything through the death of a seemingly insignificant Jewish peasant like Jesus? How could God do anything to save the world through a plan that seems like it's failed from the beginning? How could God do anything through a cross. You might look at the cross and just like Andrew, you say, what is this compared to that? When I compare the cross to my sins and my failures and my suffering, it seems irrelevant. When I look at the cross, just two broken pieces of wood with a person hanging on it, how can that change anything? But by faith, not by sight. When you look at the cross, you change the question, not what, what is this, but what is God? What is God? Yes, what can God do with the foolish things of the world? What, what can God do with the small things of this world? What can God do with the painful and unexplainable things of this world? God takes the seemingly insignificant things, the seemingly insignificant cross, and does his most significant work in human history. He dies for the sins of the world. Right? If, if a human pays for our sins, it's nothing. But if God in human flesh pays for our sins... There's more than enough. There's more than enough. What is God? See, the cross is enough because Jesus, as God, is enough. Right? He's enough to take all of our shameful past. He's enough to take all of our present guilt. He's enough to take all of our hopeless future. He's enough to take it all upon his divine shoulders and give us his very self. This is why Jesus would later, after this scene, he would say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, but whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's enough because he's the bread that never runs out. He never runs out. He never runs out of mercy. He never runs out of grace. He never runs out of wisdom. He never runs out of patience. He never runs out of kindness. He never runs out of strength. He never runs out of anything you need because Jesus is enough. And so whoever comes, he says, whoever will never lack. Because he never lacks. He'll do the greatest work with our weakest, smallest work. The little things. He does incredible things. Where, where do you believe? Where, where do you need to believe that Jesus is enough? That he's enough today. Because if you believe that he's enough, listen, he'll take whatever small thing you have and do great things with it. Whatever that is, whatever God is calling you into that, that he's inviting you to be on mission with him and, and you think it's insignificant, you think it, it can never be used in God's kingdom, listen, if you take that to him, he can do incredible things, incredible things for his kingdom. But also maybe today if you're here and you've never taken that first step of surrendering your life to Jesus. You, you think my sins are too great. My, my failures are too great. My suffering is too great. My life is, is one big great problem. There's no way I can do anything to make even a dent in it. Listen, you, you've got it wrong. It's the wrong question. The question is not how great am I to deal with all my great problems. The question is how great is God to deal with my issues? He's more than enough. And he takes this small, seemingly insignificant thing called repentance and faith where you just simply turn to him and you say, here's my 
offering. Here's my bread and fish. It's not much. It's it's not going to do what I think it's going to do, but but I give you my life. And he'll do incredible things. He'll save us. He'll redeem us. He'll transform us because he does that. That's what he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the promise is true. As Jesus said, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever comes to me shall never thirst. Lord Jesus, whether we find ourselves right now in this season, in a, in a season maybe of, of transition, where there's 10,000 unknowns, or maybe we're in a season of parenting where all the small things just seem pointless, or maybe we're in a season where we're trying to share our faith and people are turning it down and, and rejecting it and ridiculing us, and it just seems pointless. Why, why are we doing this? Whatever the small thing is, God, you love to use the small things. And where we hunger and thirst for you to show up, you promise you will. And so we ask that you would. We ask that you would act upon those promises, that you would come feed your children. We might love you more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. And as we sing this next song, our prayer team's going to be up here at the front. And if you have anything you would like us to pray for this morning as we sing this last song, we would love to pray for you. It could be something that's on your heart that as you came to church today, you've been thinking about, you've been wrestling with, and, and you just want someone to stand in the gap with you and pray. We would love to pray with you. Or if maybe something from the message was, was really striking your heart and you want someone to pray with you, we would love for you to come and, and pray with our prayer team as we sing this next song. Let's sing together and pray. Uh, before we dismiss, a few reminders. If you didn't get a chance to fill out a Connect card today, we'd love to connect with you. If you're our guest, it's a great way to get to know some folks around here for us to connect with you about how to uh, be a blessing in your life and where we can help you connect. Uh, also, if you want prayer, this is a great place to help us understand what we can be praying for in your life. Uh, after church, as we dismiss, you'll see a tent out there for the Connect Group Expo. If you're not in a connect group, please stop by, get to know what the options are. They start next week, so please uh, sign up so you can be ready to go as the connect groups start up next week. All right, and then lastly, tonight, worship night at 6 o'clock. All right, right here, here in the building, uh, we would love to have you with us as we worship together. All right, if your faith is in Christ, hear the benediction as he sends us out with his grace and favor in the good news of Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Love you all.